And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's take a moment, and it's our tradition at Christ Community Church, to take some time before the sermon just to reflect on God's Word. It'll be helpful uh, to keep your Bibles open as we go through the passage uh, this morning. The topic of um, our sermon this morning is related to this idea of what Christians throughout history have called uh, the means of grace. Uh, Some people would call them uh, spiritual disciplines. Um, Some people would call them... uh, like the habits of discipleship. Uh, there, there's actually a, a really helpful book that I would love to recommend to everyone who's interested in kind of growing in spiritual disciplines. Um, it's called Habits of Grace by this guy, David Mathis, who works for Desiring God out in, um, in Minnesota. And he is, uh, this book is available for free online and there's a study guide available for free. We've done a Sunday school class on it before. And I think this, uh, so much of what I'm gonna say is indebted to a lot of what he says in this book. So if it's something that you're at all interested in, in the midweek email on Wednesday, we'll send a link to a a kind of online series of videos uh, for this. But if you want to get oriented in the new year, I highly recommend uh, this book, uh, this study, or just watching uh, the videos. So as we're kind of beginning here in January, most of us Uh, set kind of New Year's resolutions at the beginning of the year. And if you're like me, uh, you've already kind of realized your own inability to keep your New Year's resolutions. (laughs) So whether it's diet, whether it's exercise, whether it's something with your schedule, you're kind of realizing your own uh, finiteness and your own fallibility already. Now, and if you're a college student, you just came back. So now you're actually starting your semester and you're kind of uh, starting this new season. And as we begin this time, there's so many different opportunities that get uh, set in front of us. There's so many different uh, questions about how we're going to spend our time, what we're going to commit ourselves to. Uh, And there's a lot of good things that can kind of come across the screen for us. And so because we live in this age where we kind of um, are so hyper-connected, you know, we can see um, all these different opportunities uh, to volunteer, to serve, to be involved, to... um, Uh, to do really good things. Um, The question is, well, what do we do? What do we prioritize? Um, Where do we start? And if you're like me, the amount of options can be paralyzing. You look at the sea of all the things you could commit yourself to, and you don't know quite where to start. Um, It's almost like, if you'll imagine this scene, uh, parents, maybe you can imagine this scene almost like a child um, uh, whose father has come into their room uh, after a day when they're uh, you know, playing with their post-Christmas uh, goodies. 
And they're in their room, and you know, there's probably uh, Legos strewn about the floor. There's probably uh, Pokemon cards. There's colored pencils. It's almost like Santa's um, bag exploded, and it's just all all over the room. And so, and then you, as the father, uh, would come in the room, and you would say to your child, "You need to pick up your room." And the child looks at everything that's strewn about the room, and they go, I can't do it. There's too much. I don't know where to start. And so you, if you're an impatient, uh, fallible parent like me, you just say, well, just clean it up. And then you'd walk away. And then you'd come back 10 minutes later, and you'd see, well, really no progress had been made at all, except the colored pencils had been arranged in kind of Roy G. Biv color spectrum order. So, you know, a little thing had been done, but the main things hadn't been attended to. And so you would say to your child, I asked you to clean up your room. And your child, very honestly, with tears in their eyes, would say, I don't know where to start. And if you're a good father... You'd stoop down and you'd say, well, let me show you and let me do it with you. And I'm just going to give you a few things to do. And if you keep doing those, we'll get through it. So start with the Legos. And when you put one Lego away, just look for the next Lego and then put that Lego away. And then when we're done with the Legos, we're going to get to the Pokemon cards and you're going to put those away. And then when you get done with those, we're going to take care of the colored pencils little bite-sized pieces, little ordinary actions that when added up actually get the job done. God wants to stoop down and help us know how to start the year. He wants us to give us ordinary, simple things to grab onto so that by the end of the year, we can look back and see we actually have made progress in our spiritual lives. We've actually made progress towards holiness. We've actually made progress in in our life uh, with God. And while a human father (laughs) might be frustrated, our heavenly father is infinitely gracious. And he stoops down to offer us help. Now, as we look at the help that our Father, our Heavenly Father is offering us this morning, I, I, I just want to help us um, avoid two errors that people commonly make when they think about living the Christian life. And here are the two errors. And maybe you can recognize them in your own life. They've certainly happened in my own life. One, the first danger, the first error, is that we would try to live the Christian life on our own. Uh, like we're some kind of you know spiritual monk out in the desert, or some kind of you know Christian Marlboro man who's just like off solitary, uh, taking care of all the problems in their life on their own, and they don't really need anyone. They're not really dependent on anyone else. They're going to go get it for God on their own. The Bible doesn't describe the Christian life that way. According to Scripture, the spiritual life is a life that's lived in community, as we will see. And sanctification is a team sport. So that's the first danger, that we would try to live the Christian life alone. And number two, that we would try to make progress in our Christian lives um, by diving into the kind of exceptional and the extraordinary ways of growing while neglecting the ordinary ways of growing. And what I mean is that we could think, OK, 
okay, here's what I really need to do to grow in my faith this year. I need to go to, you know, five different conferences. I need to volunteer in 10 different places. You know, I need to, you know, just fill up my, uh, f- my uh, podcast with all kinds of, of different things about time management, about uh, spiritual uh, habits. I need to read X number of books, all which could be really great and useful things. But we don't want to engage in those extraordinary things at the expense of the main things. For us, God is asking us to just take care of these main things that I'm going to describe to you and just one step at a time focus on them. Wash, rinse, and repeat over and over and over again, day by day, one foot in front of the other. These are the old paths that Jeremiah talks about where we can walk in them. This is the the easy yoke that Jesus is putting on us so we can walk in these things and find rest for our souls. So don't be distracted by all the stuff you could do. Instead, what I want us to do this morning is to let our attention, let our time be focused on the things that we really should be doing. And uh, helpfully, Luke, the writer of Acts, has given us a pattern to follow in chapter 2. Now, Luke is very self-consciously, I think, um, setting out this pattern uh, in the life of the early church for us as Christians to follow. And, and the reason we know that is, is because he's kind of repeating these same uh, habits, these same patterns of living all the way throughout both Acts and his gospel. And so um, Luke is really trying to show us what the earliest components, the basic building blocks of primitive Christianity were. And he's trying to show us what it was about these people, this, this small mi- minority of people in the ancient world that made them take the Roman Empire by storm. Uh, and as we kind of jump in here in Acts chapter 2, remember, we're jumping in right after Pentecost, which is this huge kind of epoch-making event. Is that right? Epoch, epoch, changing, earth-shattering event in the history of redemption. In Pentecost, what happens is God's spirit gets poured out on his people in a way that it hadn't ever been before. That the Holy Spirit had lived in the lives of people before, but it hadn't come in this kind of full way that we're seeing after Pentecost and we're seeing now in the church. And so there's this kind of new way of relating to God that's full of the power of the Holy Spirit, that's energized by God's Spirit being present with his people. And so what we want to ask is we want to say, okay, after Pentecost, after this amazing supernatural experience, what did the Christians get to work doing? You might imagine that it was uh, miraculous, extraordinary stuff. And actually... (laughs) you'd be surprised to see that what they were doing was pretty ordinary. It was pretty simple. It was pretty repeatable uh, by us. As we read, we'll see that this power, this strength, this vitality that was a part of the early church comes through a life lived in the word, in common, in prayer, and in public. And those are the four points. A life in the word, a life in common, 
a life in prayer and a life in public. So first, let's just look at the, the, the strength of the Christian life is coming through a life lived in the word. And we're just going to look at verse 42. This is where kind of all of these points are coming out of verse 42. Life in the word is about the gospel of Jesus. That's what uh, it means in uh, verse 42 where it says that they devoted themselves, they kind of immersed themselves, they continued in the apostles' teaching. You might be wondering, what's the apostles' teaching? I mean, what was it? Has it been lost to history? Um, No. The New Testament is our record of the apostles' teaching. If you want to know what the apostles' teaching was, you just read the New Testament. It's written by apostles and disciples of apostles and kind of biographers of apostles. So that's what we have. The record of the apostles' teaching is there in the New Testament, and it centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ. It centers around the gospel. The gospel is the news that Jesus has fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. Remember uh, Genesis 3.15? The, day, the promise that one day God would send the seed of a woman, the son of a woman to crush the head of the serpent and that he himself would be crushed in the process. All of that, looking back, all the way back to the Old Testament, the good news is that Jesus has fulfilled all of those promises. And not only that, that he has died and been raised to life to bring forgiveness of sins and new life to all who trust in him. And now he is seated in heaven on his throne, reigning and ruling, and that he's promised to come back and make everything right and wipe every tear from the eyes of his people. That's the good news of the gospel. Or as Peter says it uh, in his first sermon after Pentecost, way back in chapter 2, you can see at the very end of Peter's sermon, this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel... All you Israelites, all you covenant people that God has given his promises to, I want you to know for certain God has made him, Jesus. He has made him, Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord, he's the one who has risen and is reigning as king, and he has made him Christ. He is the Messiah who fulfills the promises of the Old Testament given to David, given to Abraham, given to Adam and Eve. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's the apostles' teaching. That's the gospel. That's what we have in the New Testament. And that's what the early church continued in. That's what they devoted themselves to. That's what they spoke about. That's what they swam in. That news, that truth, all the facts concerning Jesus and his work. And how'd they do it? How'd how'd they devote themselves to this content, this, this truth, this news? Well, they listened to sermons. They went to church together. Uh, uh, They listened to teaching outside of the church, in homes. They spoke about it with each other. They listened wherever they could. What they were doing is they were listening and learning both from uh, the New Testament, from the authors of the New Testament. Uh, they, They were listening to the stories that then would become kind of codified and brought together in the Gospels, right? So, So they're listening to the New Testament as it's being written and receiving the New Testament as the church, as it's coming in letter form to them. So they're devoting themselves to that New Testament deposit, but then also to the Old Testament. Because if you look, all of the different examples of preaching in the book of Acts all come from the Old Testament. So the early church, whenever they got up to speak, 
what they do. I mean, they just brought out the Old Testament. They said, this is about Jesus, this is about Jesus, this is about Jesus. So you could tell they were studying the Old Testament on their own. They were rehearsing it and talking about it together. From the very beginning, the church lived a word-soaked life. As much as they were able, they became students of the scriptures. And I think this is important for us to remember. The Bible is not just our authority. It is that. It's the kind of norming norm that regulates everything that we're supposed to do in our life. It's the ultimate authority that we appeal to. There's no higher court than the word of God, right? Not our opinions, not our feelings, not the traditions of men. But it's not just that. It's not just our authority. Uh, The Bible is also a way of communing with God. It's the way we stay connected with him. It's a way of, of hearing him speak to us and a way of developing relationship with him. So for us, just as we kind of look this year, what I want to ask is, is, um, how can you devote yourself to the word of God? How can you devote yourself to the gospel? How can you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, preserved in scripture, kind of centered around the gospel? How can you continue in that this year? And I'm not trying to give you more to do. Or I'm not trying to pile on more things. What I'm asking you is to think about the main thing and to think of how to season the existing aspects of your life with the word of God. So uh, tips. Uh, do you have a plan and a place to study the Bible? If you don't have a plan, one of our elders, Chuck Marzan, is uh, going through the Bible in a year, and there's an app on, on your phone that you can do, and it just kind of you know, sends reminders, and you can talk about it. It's good to have accountability. So that, that's a plan uh, that we'd love for you to join in on. Uh, also, different ways that you can kind of access the Bible, I and mean, there's a million different ways now. You can listen to audio Bibles when you're driving in the car. Um, you can, um, you know, put scripture up on your, your mirror. <laughs> you know, you can memorize the scripture. You can uh, read scripture before a meal. You can, you can pray scripture together as a family or as a household. But one of the main ways uh, that the early church committed to being soaked in the word was just by a- faithfully attending corporate worship. And we're going to see this more in in really every other aspect of their life together. But they gathered to hear the word preached. And that's always been true of Christians. And that's always been true of, of times of renewal and revival in the Christian church, is that it happened as people gathered to hear the word preached. So if there's one thing that you don't want to neglect... Don't neglect sitting under the teaching of God's word where someone can open up the Bible and show you the gospel in it, show you Jesus in it. And it may seem I'm, you know, special pleading for my own thing that I'm doing right now, telling you how important it is. But this is your lifeline. Uh, This is the thing that if if you don't neglect anything else, uh, don't neglect this. Um, The point is that God would get to us through the Bible. Uh, John 17, Jesus prays this for his people. Sanctify them, Father. Make them holy, make them whole, make them complete and devoted to you. Sanctify them in the truth. What is the truth? Your word 
is truth. The word is the way God works in our lives. God has graciously given it to us, but he's given us so much more. He hasn't left us alone. (laughs) And if you belong to him, you're now a member of a community. You're a member of his body, the church. And connecting to that community is another one of the ways we connect to God's goodness. God strengthens us. God finds us. God meets us as we live in the word in common with other Christians. Now, that, that word, um, in common, <laughs> that phrase, the, the reason I say that is, is because I think it's captured by what um, Luke means when he's talking about devoting themselves to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Uh, that word fellowship, um, it, it, you know, it can be translated in a bunch of different ways, but I think when we say the word fellowship uh, today as, uh, as Christians and in the church, sometimes it, it has this kind of odd squishiness uh, to it. So, so that fellowship is um, kind of like a, a catchphrase. It, it describes our experience uh, of just enjoying other people that are believers, a, a sense of friendship or, a, 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 you know, this, this kind of sense of intimacy uh, rather than something objective. So, but what the scripture is trying to do is it's trying to say, no, the fellowship, koinonia, that Greek word, That fellowship means that you have a shared life with other people. And it's an objective reality. It's something that's happened. You're united to other people and you're united with Christ, which is why Paul can write that we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, that we have fellowship with God. That means we have this kind of objective unity. We've been connected in a way that we can't be unconnected. We don't live on our own anymore. We live these connected life. We live life in common with Christ, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, and with other Christians. And I think this idea of fellowship, of it being this kind of gritty, real connection, uh, is captured by by J.R.R. Tolkien in the book, The Fellowship of the Ring. Now, when he's talking about the fellowship of the ring, he's not talking about just sitting around for coffee hour after church, you know, and, and having tea and crumpets. And what he's talking about is he's talking about a group of people, this kind of motley crew of, you know, dwarves and elves and hobbits and wizards and all these warriors that are banded together for a common purpose that are on a mission, They're unified by a common purpose. They've made promises to each other and they're on the road together, side by side. They've got each other's back. They go to battle together. That's what a fellowship is. It's something real. It's something gritty. It's more like a a band of brothers and sisters. The early church were a people with a mission and they walked out that mission arm in arm with each other. And as they were kind of walking arm in arm, they weren't just focused on each other. Like, how great is our friendship? How great is our fellowship? How much do I love being with you? What a great time of fellowship we're having. No, they weren't looking at each other. They were side by side looking to Jesus. One writer puts it like this. He says, the early church wasn't a mutual admiration society. It was a shared admiration society side by side, arm in arm, walking towards Christ. 
And this shared admiration for Christ expresses itself in two ways. One, through a common life together of, of sharing and generosity. And also by sharing meals together, by breaking bread together. First, you, you see the, uh, the sharing of meals. It talks about that in verse 42. Breaking of bread, and then later it talks about breaking bread together in their homes and, and being excited. Now, some people think maybe that this refers to the Lord's Supper, um, which I think it, it certainly may. It may refer to a kind of um, primitive celebration of the Lord's Supper, uh, uh, a habit that then kind of grew into something uh, that when Christians left the synagogue, they began to do together as part of their meetings. But at this very early element, I just want to, I think it's a commitment to something that the Lord's Supper also is, which is family meals. It's a commitment of sitting down and sharing food together as an outward objective expression of the fact that we've been united together, which is exactly what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, That's why we call it a supper. That's why we call it the table. That's why in Protestant churches, we, we call it the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper. And we don't have an altar here that we're sacrificing the food on. We have a table that we share the food on because it's a family meal. And that's the way it was for the early church. It was a family meal where people enjoyed the communion with God and the communion with one another. So they were committed to sharing meals together, which is a great biblical argument for potlucks. So all of you who like making casseroles, this is your proof text. And not only that, it was, it was uh, this kind of life together, this life in common was um, kind of objectively shown through the way that they shared their stuff. They shared their possessions. Um, uh, They experienced a unity with one another that transformed the way they looked at their time and their treasure. Because they had this radical commitment to to one another, because they were on mission together, because now these people who weren't a family were a family, their relationship to their, their possessions, to their stuff, changed. It says here in verse 44, 45, all who believed, all the believers were together, had all things in common. And they believe, the believers were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Later in Acts chapter four, you see the same habit. Listen to this. The full number of those who believed, they were of one heart and one soul. They had that kind of unity, this common life together. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, it's not like communism, right, where it's kind of this top-down enforced sharing. This is a voluntary sharing. You can see, everyone, nobody said that the stuff that they had was purely for them. They said, whatever God has given me, it's at your disposal. Because they have this radical unity with one another because they've been made a family, and I think just, by the way, that radical unity existed alongside a radical diversity because he didn't just have all wealthy people gathered together or all poor people gathered together. You had people who had varying degrees of affluence gathered together, and yeah, that was messy. But the way they responded to it wasn't by splitting up, but it was by those who were in a position to help, helping others. 
So you can see that the, the, the early church was marked by this radical generosity, which came from the twin truths of unity and diversity in this early group together, all empowered by the gospel. Now, this isn't even talking about the way they related to people outside the church. This is just how they were together as a church. They had a life together. They had a common life. But verse 42 shows us another important part of that common life. We see that God strengthened the church as they lived their life together in prayer, in praise, and in fellowship. Because the Christian life should be a life in prayer. Uh, Once again, uh, you can see in verse 42, Luke uses uh, the, the means the definite article. It's this idea that it it tells you that there's um, something specific that he's thinking of. Like if you're thinking of, uh, I'm going to go to a pool, you might not know which pool you're thinking of, but if I'm going to go to the pool, you know that you have a specific thing in mind. Um, So, Luke, it seems, has a specific thing in mind when he's talking about being devoted to the prayers. Um, It could mean that they, as a group of people, continued to go to the set times of prayer that they were in the synagogue. Uh, They had kind of morning, noon, and evening prayers. So, so, and certainly we see um, uh, later on that that the apostles and the believers, they kind of continued to go to corporate worship. But then Luke also says that during their meals, they were praising God in verse 47. So, um, and I, I think that would certainly involve some kind of prayer to God, right? And, and so what I think it, it, he's saying is that prayer is this thing that's kind of woven in to all the different parts of the early church's life together. In fact, every big event in the book of Acts... Uh, Saul's conversion, Peter going out to the Gentiles with the gospel, uh, ordaining deacons to serve the poor, sending missionaries, the first church council in Acts 15. Everywhere you see the church doing something significant, or rather God doing something significant through the church, prayer is a part of it. The early Christians didn't just talk to one another. They spoke to God, and that was the source of their power and their strength. For us, prayer isn't just a source of communion with God. It's also the means God uses to achieve his purposes in the world. Uh, Irenaeus, uh, who's a second century church father, uh, he lived in uh, what is now France, had this to say about the power that kind of moved and motivated the early church. He says, the church doesn't perform anything by means of angelic intervention, angels don't help them, or by invocations, by any other wicked or curious act. He's saying it's not like we're superstitious uh, in that way. It's not by magic. But the way the church performs her work is by directing her prayers to the Lord, who has made all things in a pure, sincere, and straightforward spirit, and by calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By doing that, she has been accustomed to work miracles for the advantage of mankind. Prayer works. Prayer, it it doesn't force the hand of God, but the hand of God moves into the world through the prayers of his people. It's how God works. It's how God has chosen to exercise his power to change and to rule and to reign. It's through the prayers of the church. Nothing happens of any spiritual consequence 
in this world that's not first accomplished in prayer. As a staff, when we get together, we pray before every one of our meetings. We pray for the prayer requests and the keeping in touch cards. And I I mean, more often than not, this is what Paul says. After we get done praying, he says, whatever we're gonna talk about is fine, but we just did the most important thing. We prayed. And I think this is... (laughs) what the the whole prayer card thing expresses. We've already gotten uh, emails back from some people. Um, A mother this week said, hey, there was something in our family. There was an issue that we were having that we didn't know how to deal with. And we got a prayer card back and our oldest son had written that God would intervene, that God would solve this issue. And halfway through the year, we realized it was getting solved. (laughs) And we were just praising God. We were like, this is great. And then uh, we opened up the prayer card and our oldest son had asked for the very thing that we received this year. And, And this is what she says. Thank you for prioritizing prayer. Our family has seen the power in joining together as a church in this way. So for us, Christ Community Church, when are you gonna pray? When are you going to prioritize prayer this year? Is there a way for you to dig deeper, to to pray with others, uh, to speak with God, to move the ball forward? This is our responsibility, but but it's also our privilege as God's children. So these three habits, (laughs) being in the word, uh, being together uh, in fellowship, uh, sharing meals, and also uh, in worship, praying together, hearing God's word, belonging to God's body, speaking to God in prayer. These, these are the, um, the habits of grace. Uh, these are the regular moves. These are the basic fundamentals of the Christian life. These are the things we want to continue in. Um, and just briefly, as we leave... I think our text gives us another reminder also that as we do these things, we're not supposed to do it just hidden in a cave somewhere. We're supposed to walk in these things in public. Uh, Everything these early Christians did, they did in full view of a hostile and a confused world. They gathered in private like we're doing right now, but then they scattered. And when they scattered, they still continued in these things. They still continued to be unified with one another. They still continued to speak God's word, to read God's word, to be excited and committed to God's word. They still continued in prayer. And the people saw it, and the people were baffled. (laughs) They didn't get it. (laughs) This little minority group in this big city, uh, our text says, were appreciated by the people. They had the favor of all the people. And I can't help but think that these early Christians didn't win the favor of the people with their, um, you know, uh, their flawless arguments, but by the supernatural quality of their lives together. It's the same way today. Uh, One uh, pastor says this, uh, the first Christians conquered the ancient world just by being Christian. It was their love for one another and their type of life that made such an impact upon that pagan world. And there is no question, but that is the greatest need of the hour, the Christian quality of life being demonstrated among men and women. 
That is something to which we are all called and something which we can all do. Can you do these ordinary things in full view of your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends? Can you be honest and open about the fact that you belong to Jesus and you belong to his body and that you love his word? Uh, in order for us to be used by God this way, we need to be public Christians. Uh, David does a great job, uh, David and Sharon, when they do the communicants class. They talk to these young children who are saying, I want to be a Christian. And before they come up publicly uh, to take communion as a communing member of the church, they ask them, okay, are you ready to be a Christian at school? Are you ready to be a Christian with your friends? Are you ready to be a Christian when it's not cool to be a Christian? Are you ready to be a public professing Christian? And the children say, yeah, as much as I know. (laughs) And they say, great, we're behind you. (laughs) Come and and celebrate communion uh, with us. Another way of putting it is that uh, we can't be the salt of the earth if we never leave the salt shaker. God wants us to be out in public, seasoning the world. This is how God has promised to show up. Uh, If we live life in the word, we live life in community, uh, we live life in prayer, we live life in public. It's it's important to know that these kind of disciplines, these habits, these... um, these patterns of living, they're not something that we do to kind of call down God's power. (laughs) There's nothing uh, special about these activities in and of themselves, but what's special is the God who promises to show up in them. Um, That's why we call them means of grace. They're not ways of earning. They're ways of of connecting ourselves to the God who wants to generously pour himself out to us. These are the places where God has promised to show up. So if you want to know God, if you want to grow in him, if you want to experience him, show up where you know he's promised to be. Uh, When I was in school, I had a friend who uh, really liked this girl. I mean, was uh, really, really just smitten uh, with this woman. And we had some kind of mutual friends, but he didn't really know her that well, and they lived on opposite sides of campus. And so he had this idea. Okay, I'm going to find out where her classes are. I know this sounds creepy. But they're now married, so it worked out. I'm going to find out where she's going to be. And I'm going to rearrange my schedule so I can be where I know she's going to be. So if she's going to be walking down the sidewalk, I mean, I'll just get there five minutes early and I'll happen to be on the same sidewalk and then, you know, one thing might lead to another. We might have a conversation and who knows. So what he did is he was motivated by this desire to know someone, to be near them, to be with them. And he knew where she was going to be. And so he put himself where he knew she would show up. Now, God has made it much easier for us we don't have to go search out his schedule. We don't have to, you know, quiz uh, his roommates in secret to find out where he's going to be. He's telling us, show up here. Show up in the word. Show up for corporate worship. Show up in prayer. Show up with the body. And I promise to meet you. You don't need to run after me because I'm running after you. 
Christ Community Church, will you give yourself to the one who is giving himself to you? Will you open yourself to, to receive his grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you have promised to meet us, that you have said you don't want to leave us as orphans, but you've given us your spirit and then you've given us uh, your word. You've given us the body to belong to. Uh, You've given us the gift of prayer to connect to you and to receive your strength and your power. Help us to continue in these ordinary things. Help us to not grow discouraged. And Lord, would you move us so that just as it says in our text, uh, that that, uh, joy and awe and new belief would be springing up in our midst this year. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and, and sing our final song together.